You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Haters gonna hate, right? There's actually science now to back that up. An article published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, quoting from a piece here on Solate, corroborates the hip-hop and internet truism that you just can't win with some people. Uh, the paper goes on to explain that people who hold negative views are more likely to react negatively to new stimuli because haters are gonna hate. And that's not news. Like there's a lot of hate sloshing around out there in the world. Some of it directed at me. Um, the other day I was dinking around on Instagram and I landed on a post where somebody in the comment threads on a picture on Instagram uh, accused me of attempted murder. That's new. I hadn't been accused of attempted murder before. Uh, to all the people that in my sleep I've attempted to murder, I apologize. Uh, but whatevs, haters going to hate and hate is going to make shit up. I try not to get too bogged down by it. But last week, a hater that I'm unfamiliar with hated on me so hard and so bizarrely and so revealingly that I do want to wallow in the hate for a moment. Stan Solomon is a Tea Party activist and radio talk show host and internet talk show and blogger and a political activist who got actually fired from a political campaign that he was running in Indiana after his tweets surfaced. I love it when people say someone's tweets surfaced as if tweets aren't public in the first place. You're not putting them out there in the world for mass consumption. Uh, a tweet isn't a diary you keep under your bed with a little lock and a little pink key. A tweet is something you're floating out in the world because you want people to know what the hell you think. Anyway, some of his tweets surfaced. They were really insanely anti-Semitic and homophobic and so he got fired. And you know it takes a lot of hate. You know, haters going to hate. Nobody hates like Tea Partiers hate. And it takes a lot of hate to get fired for hate from a Tea Party campaign. I got to say, not, not that I want to hate on the Tea Partiers here, but, you know, I think the only appropriate hate is to hate haters. And I do hate haters. I'm a lot of haters in Tea Party. Anyway, I don't want to bog down on that. But uh, Stan Solomon uh, hate humped my leg on his show. And I'm just going to play this, uh, this clip here for a second. Jews, homosexuals, blacks, gays, Islamists. You may think they're dis disparate groups. They're not. They're all tools. Because while we're mad at these two punks, we're mad at, at, at Trayvon Martin, that, that thug that deserves to be dead, and I'm glad he's dead. Pieces of crap, homosexual like that. What's that one guy's name? Savage. That faggot. That horrible, awful, terrible excuse for a human being. Who's at the White House promoting attacks on Christians? I hope he dies, they probably will, of every disease known. By the way, I'm sending him a fire hydrant for his birthday. I'm hoping he'll sit on it. He'll slide all the way down to the ground. Sorry, fire hydrant fans. Don't mean to insult fire hydrants. So, yeah, haters gonna hate. And haters tend to hate everybody. Uh, what he says, you know, it made the news what he said about me. But what he said about Trayvon Martin is so much more offensive. And, of course, he hates on Jews and homosexuals and blacks and Islamists. I love this idea that the gays and homosexuals are two different groups but also we're in league with the Islamists, the people who want to uh, impose Sharia law on the whole world like gay people. We're climbing into bed with the people who are cutting our heads off in Saudi Arabia. That's the plan. So he hates on me and he hates so hard and of course it winds up 
that his hate winds up crawling up my ass in the end because it's really all about ass for the haters and he's you know creates this mental image of me inserting a fire hydrant into my ass and sliding down on it all the way to the ground he's so invested in this idea that, A, that I'm a bottom because all gay men are bottoms, which means not a lot happens when gay men get together because we all just sit there looking at each other like, well, I wish there was somebody here who would fuck us, but we're all bottoms. Um, and it does. It always ends up in the butt and in disease and the butt. You know, he's, I'm going to die of every disease known to man because I'm an openly gay man and we're just disease-plagued butt monkeys covered in shit all the time. That's what they think that we are. It must kill these people. That I am here, you know, out since I was 18, came out in the 80s in the midst of the whole horrifying AIDS epidemic and somehow HIV negative after all these years. Maybe because A, I've had some good luck. I've done some, you know, taken my chances like everybody else and some people made the exact same choices I did and wound up with HIV. Uh, but I've had some luck and also I've been careful all these years. So I'm HIV negative, which must come as a crushing blow to the haters who seem so invested in me being paused. Not that there's anything wrong with being paused. But uh, just to let Stan know, I'm I'm negative, Stan. I appreciate your concern, but but again, the the butt thing, you know, that I'm gonna sit on a fire hydrant. He's gonna send me a fire hydrant for my birthday. Um, I have all the sex toys I need, Stan. You don't gotta send me one of yours. And again, it just it just it's fascinating that that, that for so many anti-gay haters like Stan Solomon here, it's about ass sex. That's what they can't get past. And the truth is that straight people have tons of anal sex in real numbers. You know, maybe gay people, a higher percentage of gay men enjoy anal intercourse. But in real numbers, there are millions and millions of more heterosexual buttfuckers out there than gay buttfuckers. We're only three, four, five percent of the population, gay people. Right? Straight people are 95, 90 percent of the population. And according to a study published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine in 2011, more than 45 percent of women in their 20s and 30s are having anal sex. And other studies have found equally high numbers across the board for women and straight men of all ages. So in real numbers, that 40 plus percent of straight people having anal sex is higher than the 75 percent of gay people having anal sex. So this, this projection onto gay people that we're the only people who have butt sex and we sit on fire hydrants and we slide all the way to the ground when we do because our asses are just completely blown out, loosened, sloppy, fire hydrant accommodating caverns at this point is just insane. And of course Stan Solomon is insane. Anyone who thinks that gays and homosexuals are working with Islamists and hates on Trayvon Martin who did nothing wrong, who is the victim – and believes, as Stan Solomon goes on to say in this rant, that the gays and the Islamists and the blacks and the Jews are all coming to kill the white people. That's, what, that's where he goes with this rant, that we're all in league to murder all the white people. Welcome, Jews. You are no longer white, according to the Stan Solomons of this world. And this is Stan Solomon's radio show. He has sort of what passes for the mainstream of right-wing Christian radical bat shittery. These people go on his show. Phyllis Schlafly, E.W. Jackson, Larry Pratt, Alan Keyes, according to Right Wing Watch, which broke this story. They all go on his show. They all swan around on his show where he rants about the Jews and homosexuals all coming to kill the white people. And he advises all the white people to buy guns to protect themselves from Latino terrorists and all the gays and blacks and 
Jews and homosexuals and Islamists because if you are white, you're a target. Solomon went on to say, get a gun, know how to use it, never be without it and never leave your family unprotected. Of course, nothing ups your chances of dying from gun violence than one of your loved ones uh, having a gun in the home. But whatevs, we're going to leave that alone. Yeah, arm up, white people, because we're coming for you with our shit-smeared fire hydrants. <sighs> Haters going to hate. We don't want to dwell, but it's just so revealing. You know, it always ends up up the butt. Always up the butt. When in reality, most of the people – I'm taping this on Friday. Happy Tuesday morning, everybody. Most of the people who will be taking it up the butt this weekend are not gay people. Most of the butt fucking that's going to happen this Saturday night and this Sunday morning, heterosexual. Most of the Santorum that's going to drip out of assholes into toilets all across America after the butt fuckery is over this weekend, heterosexual. And not just women getting fucked in the ass anymore, thanks to my efforts and the efforts of other sex radicals, but also Men getting fucked in the ass by their wives and girlfriends with their great big massive strap-on fire hydrants. Men too will be sitting down, straight men, at toilets to crap out the Santorum. But in the bubble that Stan Solomon lives in, anal sex, which Tracy Clark Flory, writing on Salon, said, for her generation, the backdoor option is what the blowjob was to the generation that came before, a fun new taboo waiting to be broken. Somehow for Stan Solomon, anal sex is defines gay people and – stigmatizes and marginalizes us when in reality anal sex is straight and gay as oral sex is straight and gay. There's really nothing that gay people do in bed that straight people don't and vice versa. Speaking of haters hating, there are protests all over the world today, Tuesday, September 3rd. If you're listening to the show as it came out, uh, there are protests scheduled all over the world um, to raise attention and awareness about the anti-gay, anti-LGBT laws and uh, violence that, that is plaguing uh, the, the queer community, violence uh, promoted by state authorities, uh, basically legalized by, by these new laws, stigmatizing uh, LGBT people, making it a crime, literally a crime to be out of the closet. And there are protests all over the world today, September 3rd, uh, to raise awareness and to call the Russians out. Go to allout.org slash Russia events to find out about protests near you. There's one in Seattle today at the Russian consular residence. There is a protest also in Vancouver, British Columbia at 6.30 p.m. at the Consulate of Russia at 475 Howe Street in Vancouver that a friend asked me to quickly promote because that just got scheduled. There are also protests in Barcelona, Buenos Aires, Dublin, Galway, La Paz, Bolivia, London, Madrid, Manchester. There's a huge list. New York, Ottawa, Seattle, Toronto. There's a huge list at allout.org slash Russia events. Let us have a laugh at Stan Solomon at Stan Solomon's expense. Let us rub his nose and his idiocy and call him out. But let us also turn out to speak up for Russians who are no longer in a position, Russian queer people and their allies who are straight, no longer in a position in Russia to speak up in their own defense, we're going to have to do it elsewhere and scream and yell and make noise. So uh, find out how you can participate in the Global Speak Out for Russia, which happens today, September 3rd, again by going to allout.org slash Russia events. And now your calls. Hey, Dan. How's it going? For the last five years or so, I've uh, I've been pretty polyamorous, you know, I've seen a lot of different women, a lot of different women. I find it quite easy to get girls and uh, I've met a girl and I really like her and, um, you know, I want to try and make it work with her. But the problem is, is that I like taking down girls too much, not taking down as in, you know, running them down in a car, but you know what I mean? And um, 
like I said, I find it really easy, comes really easily to me, comes like, you know, I so every day is a struggle, to be honest. She's said to me that she's not up for any kind of monogamish type situation, which I think I could compromise on. To be honest, most women are not down for having any kind of like extracurricular activities. So um, so I'm left at a kind of quandary because I know if I cheat and I don't tell her, then, you know, she finds out that I, I couldn't really live with that. And but at the same time, I don't know if I can really stand not messing with other girls. So I just wanted your advice on what you thought, what you think I should do. I'd really appreciate that. As you can tell from my accent, I'm English, but uh, I live in the States. Yeah, I mean, maybe, look, the situation is just that I need to suck it up and give up my desires for other girls, but I just don't know how practical that is. I knew it. I knew when I heard your insanely sexy accent uh, and when you mentioned then that you get tons of pussy that you would eventually get around to, I live in the States. Boy, a British accent, an Australian accent, a New Zealand accent. If you are a straight guy living in Australia, the United Kingdom or New Zealand and you're not getting much pussy, get thee to the United States. You'll get more pussy, as I like to say, than the dumpster behind a vet's office. You will have so much pussy stuffed in you. Um, what I think you should do, first thing I think you should do is stop abusing the term polyamorous. You are not polyamorous. You're just a big slut, which is a fine thing to be. Uh, but you're just a big himbo. You were dogging around, catting around. You're just having tons of sex. Polyamory is not I fucked a million people. Therefore, I am polyamorous. Polyamory is – Somebody with uh, multiple loving, committed relationships going at one time. Polyamory would be you have a girlfriend and a wife. Polyamory would be your wife also has another male partner or girlfriend and all of you know each other and you're all good uh, about it and good to each other, not threatened by each other. This will be some jealousy to process. That's polyamory. That's a polyamorous model. What you were doing is you were just fucking tons of American chicks. That's not what poly – you look up polyamory in the dictionary and it doesn't say fucking tons of American checks. Multiple committed intimate relationships, all above board, all on the up and up. Um, so that's the first thing you should do. Stop abusing the term polyamory. Uh, the second thing you should do is uh, kind of what you've already done. You've already worked your way through this. You know yourself. It's important before any of us goes into a committed relationship that we know ourselves. We know what we're capable of. We know what we need. We know what we like. And then you don't make a commitment that you know. You damn well know you're going to be incapable of keeping. You are not, it sounds like, cut out for a monogamous commitment. That is not going to be the kind of relationship that makes you happy. That is not a relationship model that you should agree to under duress because you're really into somebody. Because what we know of you and what we know of this girl that you're interested in is however much you like each other, however much you spark off each other, you are basically bedrock fundamentally sexually incompatible. You want to fuck a million chicks and you can and you have and that doesn't sound like it's something that you're going to give up and she doesn't want to be in a non-monogamous relationship. There are women out there who want to be in non-monogamous relationships. I would encourage you to do the hard work of finding them. Yes, most women are not down as you say uh, for non-monogamy or monogamishamy or polyamory. Uh, most men aren't down for it either. But there are women out there who are down for it. You want to have a happy, successful, honest, long-term committed relationship with someone you spark with and you get along with and you like someone you could be partnered to. I think knowing what we know of you, knowing what you know of yourself, that that person needs to be down with non-monogamy. Those women are out there. It would be worth it for you to do the 
extra work, the hard work of finding one with whom you are compatible. Hi, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old college student in the Midwest, and my question is regarding um, an acquaintance of mine who was recently thrown off campus for sexual assault or sexual assault-ish reasons. It's a very small school, so everybody knows everybody. And he was sort of widely known as someone who would dance with girls who didn't want him to dance with them, would get really drunk and make an ass of himself, usually in a pretty sexual way. Um, And for some people, it was pretty bothersome. And for other people, it was sort of a laughable thing. And he recently took it too far by putting his hand up someone's skirt uh, when he was drunk at a party and was suspended from campus. Um, perhaps indefinitely, the verdict is still kind of out on that one, whether he can wait a year and come back or not come back at all. As far as my personal thing, I don't really give a fuck whether or not he comes back. I don't care about him as a person, but I have recently been asked to testify against him because I once fooled around with him beginning of my freshman year when I sort of didn't know better, didn't really know him, was just kind of trying to be in college and have fun, and mentioned to a friend that he was sort of uncomfortably aggressive. That being said, I don't know if I feel right testifying. Um, I don't know if what he was doing were signs that he could be a rapist now or later, or that things could escalate, and that this is a kick in the ass that he needs to get his shit together, or if He's just some sad, drunk fuck who needs some alcohol counseling and needs to figure out that side of his life. Just to up the ante, I am a rape victim from a few years ago, and I'm not trying to be insensitive, but I'm also trying to be fair, and I don't want to hurt someone who made a couple mistakes. I don't really know what to think about this. I don't want to round anything up to rape, but I also don't want to let someone get away with something that's fucking shitty. This isn't a court. Uh, This is some sort of university-convened star chamber. You haven't been subpoenaed. You don't have to testify if you don't want to testify. You don't have to go in there and reveal details of your personal uh, history, of your sex life, of the sexual interactions you had with this guy against your will. If you don't want to be a part of this little star chamber, you don't have to be. That said, you know, drunken gropings at parties are a part of college life but also a part of rape culture, a part of testing the waters, a part of pushing boundaries. And there are people who are rapists who will engage in that sort of behavior. There are also people who are rapists who seem like the nicest guys in the world, sensitive new age guys who would never harm a woman, never touch a woman in that way. There are these sensitive new age guy types who say all the right things, who appear to be completely, fully realized, self-actualized feminist men, totally right on, who then will rape someone, uh, date rape someone, uh, stranger rape somebody, brutally rape somebody. All rape is brutal, but you know what I mean. (sighs) And so it's just not as easy as looking at the drunk, belligerent guy at the party and saying rapist and looking at the sensitive new age guy in the corner playing his harpsichord and saying totally safe, dude, right? So it doesn't follow that this guy's behavior automatically, you know, three steps into the future, he is a rapist. It doesn't follow that three steps in the future, he's not a rapist, particularly if he doesn't get any hard-ass fucking pushback against these kinds of behaviors in which he is currently engaged, which hand up the skirt drunkenly at a party, uh, 
in a non-consensual way is definitely sexual assault and that he should be held accountable. So the question here isn't whether this kid, college student, should be held accountable or not. He's being held accountable. The question is whether you have to participate, whether you have to have the details of your sex life and your sexual interactions with him dredged up in a public forum and you have to answer questions about them. And the answer to that is no. If you're uncomfortable having that conversation, if you don't wish to have that conversation for whatever reason, you don't have to have that conversation. You don't have to participate and you don't have to worry that he isn't being held accountable. He's already been bounced from campus. Hopefully he's already in some sort of alcohol treatment program. Hopefully he's seen the error of his ways and the crazy chaos that these kinds of behaviors can visit on his own life, not just the trauma can visit on someone else's life. And he's going to fucking get straight with the Lord or whatever or whoever. Uh, but do you have to go to this university star chamber quasi court and answer questions if you don't wish to? No, no, you do not. Hey, Dan. Uh, I'm a 32-year-old straight male. I'm having a bit of a problem with my best friend. From the time that I was 18 to 24, I was in a long-term relationship with my ex-girlfriend. And at the three-year mark between us, we had broken up for about six months. In the six months that we were broken up, my best friend, uh, who I've known for almost 20 years, was sort of helping me out through the whole process was, you know, being a buddy to me and helping me out. But he was also close friends with her and was sort of, he got kind of caught up in the middle of it. And at the time I was, you know, I felt bad about that, you know, and, you know, he was trying to be a friend of both of us and, you know, it's kind of a difficult situation. At one point he told me that she had come on to him uh, the time that we were broken up and he pushed her away, you know, that it was not appropriate, you know, that he was my buddy and, you know, that this was, wasn't, it wasn't right. So fast forward almost 10 years later, my ex-girlfriend and I have become pretty close again, pretty good friends. And recently after a long period of time, not talking to each other, we went out to lunch and just catching up, reminiscing on old times, jokingly hashing out, you know, our former relationship, which ended kind of brutally. And, uh, she said, you know, or I said, you would help me out if, you know, I knew if you ever cheated on me because I, I was curious about that and it kind of played into some of my, you know, deep problems with jealousy. And she said, no, no, I never, ever cheated on you. But, you know, I did sleep with people in the six months that we were broken up. And I said, yeah, no, I know about that. I know about so-and-so and so-and-so. And she says, well, do you know about, and then she said my best friend's name. And I was like, uh, excuse me. And she said, I cannot believe that chicken shit never told you. And apparently they had dated for a brief period of time and she broke it up because he wouldn't complain about it to me. And the 10 years since, he has not said one word to me. And now I just don't know what to do. I mean, I'm angry and I don't know how to confront her about it. I would like to, you know, get over this and work past it, but... I had heard of him doing similar things back in the day with other friends, you know, kind of was his MO and I just don't know what to do. So 10 years ago, your best friend fucked your at that moment ex-girlfriend and then lied to you about it. And yeah, that's kind of a sh shitty thing to do. But best friends have been doing those sorts of shitty things to each other forever. That's why this is almost a cliche. That's why – 
based on the facts that you had at hand, you should have just assumed that he'd fucked your girlfriend and he wasn't telling you the truth and he wasn't being straight with you at the time. Uh, but you should go to him and say, dude, why didn't you ever tell me? And, and the answer is obvious. He didn't tell you because he was afraid that you would be angry and that it might fuck up your friendship. And here we are 10 years later and you're angry and it might fuck up your friendship. So you know why he didn't tell you. So what you, the, the, the choice for you now, what you have to do now after he comes clean and he admits it and apologizes, which he of course is going to do, is you need to get out the scales and put – the 10 plus years of friendship on one side and the fucked your girlfriend while you were broken up on the other side and decide for yourself which one you're going to give more weight or which one legit has more weight. I would hope that the 10 years that you that have elapsed since he boned your then ex-girlfriend, that he has been there for you and done for you and, and walked with this as kind of a stone in his shoe, right? He's always probably felt a little bit bad about it and a little afraid of coming clean, afraid of the day you would find out. And I would hope that all of that friendship weighs more than just – I don't want to use the expression bros before hoes because that's very, very sexist and horrible. Uh, usually in the context in which it is used, it's sexist and horrible. But this guy fucked a girl that you are no longer with and didn't want to be with or belong with and it was just like youngster, kid, high school, college age fucking fucky drama. It was Melrose Place. It was – Gossip Girl. It was whatever the show on right now it, that's about this kind of shit. It was that. It's a cliche. It's so common. And so the decision that you have to make now is whether you're going to sacrifice this friendship on the altar of something that you have a legitimate right to be angry about. But whatever. You know? You have this relationship with your ex-girlfriend now and Everything's on the table and it's all honest. You have a relationship still with your best friend and now everything can be on the table and you guys can be honest with each other. Have the convo with him. It might help if you hear him apologize, right? And you hear him talk about how he's always regretted it and he felt a little weird about it. And maybe that was his MO back at the time to move in on the vulnerable exes of guys in his social circle because the only way he could get any pussy. But maybe he's got some – perspective on that now and is a little bit more self-critical about the way he behaved then now and hearing that might help you repair your friendship with him now. And all that said, I don't think you should give him a pass. But I think you should give the cliche a pass. This is a thing that happens. It happens so often it is a plot line on every primetime soap opera and you can follow the script and be indignant and cut him out of your life and then you've lost a friend and gained what? If this is not something he does anymore, if this is not something he would do anymore, if there were lessons learned, you've sacrificed a friend uh, to gain really nothing. It's not going to change the past. And you guys can continue to have a relationship into the future that's more honest. And if you can plow through the, the, the ugliness of that initial conversation and the hurt and the pain and the apology, this will become a running joke. I promise you that two years in the future – you guys will be joking about this, that this can become a gag. This can become part of the texture and scope of your friendship, that there have been highs and there have been lows. There have been betrayals and there have been forgivenesses. There are no long-term relationships with romantic partners, friends, without forgivenesses and without betrayals. And so I would encourage you to have it out, hear him out and forgive him and keep him in your life. But I'm magnanimous that way. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 44-year-old gay man, and um, I've just got a new fuck buddy. He's HIV positive, 
so we're taking precautions. But he claims that he's got a zero viral load and that he's no longer on any medication, although he gets tested regularly. And that just set up a red flag for me. I'd never heard of that, not being on any kind of medication, but having that, uh, a, you know, an untraceable viral load. So I was trying to figure out what that meant. Additionally, I didn't know if it made sense if I was to try out a trial of Truvada, which I guess a couple of friends might have been doing, who are HIV negative, who wish to remain HIV negative, who have partners that are positive. So I'm just wondering what your opinions were of those two uh, issues. Thanks a lot. Love your show. Joining us by phone, Dr. V. Chu, one of the co-founders of Capitol Hill Medical, Seattle's GLBT-focused primary care clinic, where they provide HIV care and medical gender transition care. Uh, so, Dr. Dr. V., let's just jump right in on this. So we, uh, so you heard the question, right? Yeah, I did. Um, let me get this right. This 44-year-old gay male has a new fuck bud, is that right, who's HIV positive? HIV positive, and the guy says that he has an undetectable viral load and is not on any medications. Is that possible? Mm-hmm. It is very, it's actually, it is possible. Um, it's hard to know how many uh, uh, patients uh, who are HIV positive are, can maintain a zero viral load while not on medications, but we call them elite controllers. The interesting thing I noticed is that they're the ones we're looking at to try to come up with the next sort of generation or next phase of vaccines because they can make antibodies that keep the HIV virus at bay, meaning you don't, you're not even on medications. You can't find the virus. Mm-hmm. Um, but your antibodies are so good that it keeps the, the infection at bay. Now, we think it's a really, really small percentage of patients. We think it's pretty unusual to find. Um, I think I might have one um, in, my, in my practice, but um, even then it's hard to know because, you know, you check your, you check your viral load once, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe you check it once every three to six months. Um, uh, and then, you know, you, you don't know what the viral load is outside of that time, that one check that we did. So it's definitely possible. It's really, really uncommon. And so, um, you know, I don't know if this person is new to this guy, but I just, it's one of those things where knowing that someone comes along and says, I'm a unicorn, you know, I mean, not trust but verify, but just kind of be careful. And it sounds like he's already using protection. I guess what I would say is, you know, keep using protection. And uh, because you don't know, even if he's on medications, you don't know what, his viral load will be next week. Maybe it's not undetectable. Right. Um, it could very well be as he, he gets to know him that every he gets to know him better, and that every single time he's ever been tested, he's got zero viral load. So he's got he's one of these elite controllers. But um, you know, just based on the numbers, it's they're they're few and far between. Trust but verify was the phrase that kept popping into my mind when I was listening to his call. This if this is I've actually never heard of this. Somebody who is not on any drugs, not in, taking anything, and has an undetectable viral load. If that's a real thing, elite controllers, I love that expression. I love that phrase. Yeah, it that's, actually, a, that's, a technical, that's a term. If that's a real thing, though, and, and that person is so rare, you really do have to weigh what you know about this person against what you don't know about this person. And people do lie. And I'm not saying that this guy is lying, but that's always a possibility right. in a new relationship that somebody's playing you and there may be somebody out there who's HIV positive who doesn't want to be on the drugs because they consider them toxic or they're sort of new age woohoo about drugs. They don't want to take them who may right. just claim to have an undetectable viral load and not know. And if you don't know this person well enough to know that he's even seeing the doctor regularly or having his viral loads checked regularly, right? you can't throw the condoms away. No, no, you can't. And, and, and I agree with you. You know, you can't assume the worst in people, but um, and let's say we assume some of the best in this person, and we we think that actually he he every time he's had his viral load checked, it seems to be undetectable or very low. Let's say like very very suppressed, very low numbers. Um, you don't know 
again, like what his viral load is all the time. And one of the only ways to achieve certainty in that, and a lot of HIV specialists, um, if even if they have an elite controller, um, you know, medications have their own side effects, but in general, they're safe enough now that we we tend to say, you know, you should probably be on the medications anyway. It's the one way you kind of be certain. Um, at least you know if you're on these medications, they're very potent and it keeps the viral load suppressed, in which case, you know, we feel pretty good about it. Because um, the subtext to the person's question is, you know, well, you're using condoms, and I, I um, in this situation, I would recommend you continues to use them. But in any relationship, you get to reach a point where you wonder, should we be using, using protection? And everyone, you know, he's an adult; he can make his big boy decisions. But you know, um, I just want to make sure that he knows what his actual risk is. Um, certainly, it's lower than someone who has a viral load, a very detectable viral load, or not, who's not on medications. Sounds like the risk is much lower, but it's—I I can't say it's zero. You know? Speaking of risk and um, controlling for it, what's your professional medical opinion of Truveda, which is an HIV med, an antiretroviral treatment that is designed for HIV-negative people to take? That uh, Michael Lucas, the gay porn star, just came out with a big article mm-hmm. explaining that he's on Truveda, and that he thinks more people, more HIV-negative gay men like him, should be on Truveda. Uh, what does Truveda do, and what's your medical opinion? And do you advise your HIV-negative patients to take it? Yeah, you know, it's a very, it, there's a big study that came out that looked at basically what's called pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, and Truvada was the, the one that they used for that study. Basically, they looked at two groups of patients, um, and they they gave both groups aggressive H, um, HIV um, prevention counseling as well as STD screening. Um, and then one of the groups, they gave a placebo, and the other one they gave um, Truvada. And it's what well, basically uh, reduces your risk of getting HIV infection by well, in this study, all comers forty about forty four percent, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that's actually a big deal because if you looked at the people who are taking the Truvada, they actually did their blood levels as well, and the people who had the highest levels of Truvada, the protection against HIV was upwards of ninety, probably even higher percent. So if you're taking it every day, mm-hmm. your likelihood of getting HIV was extremely low. Now, the thing about Truvada is it's expensive. And it's got its own risks as well. Um, it is a medication. It is uh, something you have to take every day. And if you do take it every day, just a very small number of patients have been shown to have some kidney function issues. The nice thing is if you're HIV negative, you can kind of, we can just take you off of it. Whereas if you're, if you're HIV positive, we had to switch medications and stuff. But the study was really, really, really good. It was really compelling. It's not for everyone. Um, like I said, if you're not insured, it's probably not an option for you. Um, and even if you are, you might have a really high copay on it. Um, the uh, it, it is two big medications. I mean, basically, when you have HIV, we put you on three medications, and this is two of them. It, they are the two that are sort of the most easy to take. It's kind of like my patients say it's like taking a vitamin. You, you don't really feel anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do have to come in to see me to make sure that um, we're checking your, your kidney function levels. And, you know, even before we start, we have to do a, a, an HIV test, a couple HIV tests to just really prove that you don't have HIV. Um, and my, my con- one, quickly, my concern about that study, and I read it, was that coupled with the drug was HIV prevention counseling and people were encouraged even on the drug to keep using condoms. And I'm worried that what's getting lost in translation out there is if you go on this drug, you don't have to use condoms. You don't have to worry about condoms anymore. And I worry, oh, about, I worry about compliance rates on the, for the, with people who would be seeking this drug in order to justify recklessness. I don't think somebody who's reckless – who wants you know a get out of having safe sex free card is going to be 
religious or conscientious about making sure he's taking this drug every day. Not that I don't think it should be available. People have a right to make their own choices and I think doctors should make their choices. I'm not saying that they should slap the Truvada out of Michael Lucas or yeah, Michael Lucas's <laughs> hands or anything. And I don't think Michael Lucas is being irresponsible. Based on his story, I think he's being really responsible. I'm just worried about what's going to get lost out there. You know, there are studies that show that when you know the the health benefits, the safety benefits of uh, seatbelt use in cars at first were wiped out then by people going faster. That the the protection offered by seatbelts was uh, eliminated by people being a little bit more reckless about the way they drove, at least initially. Yeah, yeah. And so, will are we setting ourselves up for the same sort of whatever the benefits and the protections of this drug for HIV negative men could be? wiped out by people being reckless while on this drug and increasing their risk of HIV uh, transmission instead of decreasing it? We have a little bit of an answer in that study where they actually found that the patients who were on, um, basically that they, there were not increased rates of like high-risk sex, bareback sex, while on um, sort of the idea that you're on this medication. Um, now, but, but those guys were on this medication and seeing HIV counselors on a regular basis during this study. Right. So that's not the right. real world environment where somebody's going to go to their doctor and get Truvada. They're not going to go to their doctor, get Truvada, and then be checking in with an HIV counselor every couple of months. Right. No, that's pretty aggressive. But here's the thing: in, in the real world as well, though, um, you know, I would like to think that everyone is a rational being at all hours of the day. Do you listen to my show? Wait, do you, do you listen to my show? <laughs> but you know what I mean? I would like to think that. <laughs> the, right? the idea that everyone's really, a rational being. I think you being and I know doesn't... they're not, right? Uh-huh. So, so, so I guess what I usually say is, you know, um, you know if, there, if everyone thought clearly when they were horny or when they were, you know, under the influence of a substance, we probably wouldn't have an issue. Uh, HIV would be on the, on the way down. But the fact of the matter is you don't always make the best decisions. And if someone has already has a bunch of Truvada in their blood and they make a, a poor decision, well, you know, I, I did reduce the risk of HIV. There's plenty of other shit you can get, right? Mm-hmm. You can get a lot of other stuff, even stuff that's not curable. Um, well, at least treatable. But um, it seems, especially in our, in our, in our culture where we've, we've sort of grown up with HIV, HIV is the one that concerns them the most. It's the one that they, it's the big bugaboo. And if I can reduce their risk by putting them on Truvada, I will. Now, like I said, it's not for everyone. If you are in a partnered relationship, um, you know, and you're just really over worried about HIV and you guys don't bring anyone else, you're not going to need it. Patients who generally, I think there's CDC rough guidelines on it. Like I think it's more than five partners a year, which I think is like most of my patients, like mm-hmm. the vast majority of my patients. Um, then they, they said that's something you should consider or any sort of history of having bareback sex. Um, and, and so to me, it's like, I don't, I, I, I understand what you're saying. Like, you know, are we going to see increased rates? Is, you know, the fabric of society going to tear because of this? Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that it won't. Um, it is, it is one arm of a multi arm sort of phase and attack against HIV. I think it's a really good arm. I think for some people, it makes a lot of sense. Discordant couples is another one. H, you know, uh, one person is HIV positive and one who's negative, but I don't think, I mean, in primary care and gay practice, my job is harm reduction. And if someone plops on a mic in front of me and says, I'm going to go on a cruise next week, I'm probably not going to make the best decisions. I can live with getting gonorrhea and chlamydia, but I, I want to protect myself against HIV. Would you do this for me? I probably would. Um, it, you, because from the way I view it is, is, is they're going to do it anyway. Right. But here's a way for me to step in and say, you know, Here's something I can do for you. And, um, and what would your advice be to this guy who's dating the guy who has HIV but undetectable viral load, not on meds? Should he go on meds? 
if, is he going to stay with this guy? You know, if he's going to stay with this guy, are they are now a certain important couple? Are they going to stop using barrier protection? Um, you know, even if they are using a barrier protection, can you know, is it an option for him? Maybe actually, because you know, condoms aren't you know, condoms can fail. Mm-hmm. Um, people don't use them right. Um, and you know, if you if you use a condom well and it doesn't fall off and you use it correctly, you're not. I mean, I can't say you can't, but I'm going to say it's really, really, really unlikely that you would contract HIV. Um, and this person who is maximally virally suppressed, his risk is already low. But again, I can't say it's zero, and I would encourage him to keep using condoms. Now, for him, Truvada, maybe. Um, depends um, on how worried he is. Uh, like I said, the, his risk, if this person really, truly is undetectable, the risk is very, very, very low if he's using a condom. So getting that little, um, specifically, it's probably like 96, 97% reduced in, of risk. Now, are we going to get, we're going to put him on Truvada and get that extra 44 to 90% to get that extra three, two to three percent, do you think it's worth paying, you know, a huge copay once per month and watching your kidney function? I don't know if that's, if, if, if that's the right thing to do, but maybe it is for him. Maybe he's worried about it. Dr. V. Chu, one of the co-founders of Capitol Hill Medical, Seattle's LGBT-focused primary care clinic, where they also provide HIV care and medical uh, gender transition. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today. Thanks so much, Dan. Good to talk to you again. Hey, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old gay male in California. Um, and I have a question for you that maybe you can help me with. I'm actually uh, HIV positive. Uh, been positive for six, about going on six years now. Um, and recently, I started talking to this guy who's uh, who's not positive. It started out as a friendship. We kind of just met, met at a concert, and just kind of hung out and became friends. And then recently, um, we've kind of started being a little bit more intimate, I guess. We started hand-holding, cuddling, um, but we neither one of us ever discussed the, um, about going beyond a friendship. So um, I was wondering, when would be the best time to disclose to him my HIV status? Uh, should I wait till one of us brings up the fact that uh, if we want more than just a friendship uh, before I tell him, or should I tell him right off the bat? Um, the thing is, since I've been diagnosed with HIV, I've kind of avoided dating negative guys um, just because I had a really bad experience. One of them turned into an abusive relationship and because he pretty much just said, oh, well, since you're lucky that you can get me because you have HIV. So, And the other one pretty much fled to the hills. So since then, I pretty much just dated positive guys. So I really don't know where to go from here. Fuck the guys who head for the hills when you do the right thing and disclose. To hell with them. Uh, and, and you need to, as I've said before to other pause guys on the show uh, and in my column and in my personal life, you need to regard uh, those guys running for the hills as having done you a favor. When you tell someone you are pause, you are telling them one thing about you. The way they react – tells you almost everything you need to know about them. If they don't listen, if they're uh, HIV-phobic, if they're panicked, if they're irrational, that's not someone you want to be in a relationship with at all. So good riddance to crazy negative rubbish when they run for the hills and don't listen. I do think for yourself though, you should disclose early before you've made a large investment emotionally or, or with your time in this other person because you don't know if they're going to be a basket case and a nut about it. So this guy that you're being intimate with, that you're hanging out with, 
you should tell him sooner rather than later. Say, you know, it feels like the relationship's moving in a certain direction and I just want you to know before either of us get in any deeper that I'm paused and I'm in treatment and this is my viral load and I'm healthy and I'm not interested in unsafe sex and la di da di da and just want you to know. And if he heads through the hills, goodbye. And then you will be less hurt for having disclosed early than if you waited and you were really – really fallen for this guy only to find out then that he was an HIV-phobic nutbag and an asshole who ran away from you. Um, that said, when somebody runs for the hills, I think you can give them 10 minutes to decide whether or not they're going to run back. Sometimes people will have an initial panic reaction, particularly – you know, you say you're 24 years old. Your chances in a relationship – uh, for the other guy being the first guy who's ever disclosed this to him are pretty high and sometimes people the first time this happens can have a really sort of impulse negative reaction. If the guy thinks about it and gets online and reads a little bit about it and reconsiders his initial reaction and comes back to you and wants to talk, don't hold that first panic against him. Be the bigger person at that moment uh, because a lot of people who are neg will have a – crazy panicked reaction. Um, the assholes continue to have the crazy panicked reaction. The decent neg guys who come around, they may come back to you and say, you know, I, I apologize for how I reacted. Let's talk. Right? Don't hold their initial reaction against them if they come around. But if they run, fuck them. It's a wonderful asshole detection system that you have. Uh, HIV in a context like this Regarded as kind of a superpower, you have this divining rod where you can separate the decent, rational, sane, lovable, nice guys from the fucking jerks pretty quickly. Hi, Dan. This is a 25-year-old bi-curious female living in San Fran. I'm in a very loving, caring relationship with my partner for the last five years. We're both very GGG and very open to bondage, dom sub play, etc. We're also uh, burners. I've been to Burning Man once without him. He's gone to Burning Man twice without me. And last year we went together for the first time. Our relationship is even stronger now. Everything went great. Um, we are interested in bringing in a unicorn um, to have a female-female male threesome. We want to take it slow for the first time. And Burning Man seems a great place to do this because there's so many open, open, loving, sexually free people. But it's also a harsh environment with lots of dust. It's traveling. can be stressful in a relationship. I will add that I brought this up, this unicorn threesome idea, and he is a little bit hesitant. We don't want to hurt our relationship because we love each other very much. So is Burning Man a good place to find a first-time guest star appearance, or should we wait until we are back in our uh, comfortable home environment in a less stressful situation. Thank you. They call them unicorns for a reason. They're hard to find. I think there are more unicorns on the ground per capita at Burning Man than perhaps anywhere else. But it's not just snap your fingers, find a unicorn at Burning Man or at home. This is the sort of thing where I think you need to be open to possibility and chance and kismat. Go to Burning Man and if a unicorn crosses your path, seize the opportunity and then if it doesn't, go home and engineer that opportunity. Uh, the idea that dust and travel precludes sexual experimentation or adventure is pretty silly. A lot of people travel and fuck. That traveling does not preclude fucking nor does dust. Otherwise, no one who lives – in a dusty place would ever get laid ever. Uh, so go to Burning Man. Keep an open mind. Keep open legs. And if 
the unicorn comes along, great. I think what you need to get to the bottom of, perhaps with your boyfriend, is whether this is something he really wants at all. Because it could be. What I'm detecting here is he wants to rule it out at Burning Man for some reason. Uh, maybe he's just kicking the can, the unicorn can, further down the road because he's not there yet. You're ready and you're game and you're chomping at the bit. You want to make this happen. You want to seize the first opportunity. And he may need a little more time to acclimate to this idea uh, of not just a three-way with another girl but uh, some sort of quasi-relationship with another girl, that unicorn that you're after. Um, maybe he's not ready yet and maybe that's why his objections are so transparent and, and thin and, and, and idiotic. Ooh, dust and travel. We can't fuck anybody else. Please, what? So have a conversation with your boyfriend of five years about what he really wants, what he's really ready for. Because what I detect here in this these rationalizations about why he doesn't want to have sex with anybody but you at Burning Man is some underlying discomfort with the idea of you guys opening up your relationship to anyone else at all at this stage. Hi. I'm a 30-year-old straight poly male in the Bay Area. I was struck by a pretty harsh revelation of family history this past weekend while seeing my uncle for the first time in several years. Apparently, my mother's father, was my grandfather, uh, sexually abused her and her sisters in a systematic and pervasive way. He was also interested in my sister, but my mother prevented anything from happening. I have two problems now. Problem one, he was a hero to me. Uh, he kept the roof over our heads while I was growing up, and I modeled most of my worldview on his examples. Uh, when I was 13, he died on vacation overseas, just me and him, uh, holding my hand. And I don't know how to reconcile uh, the hero with this monster. Problem two is my mother and the rest of my family. She's never mentioned or said anything about this, and uh, she's even helped foster this sort of hero image I had of him. And uh, just don't know if I should talk to her about this, and if I should, then how do I bring it up? Wow, this one's really above my pay grade, it feels. I think you should find a sexual abuse counselor or a family issues counselor and you should talk to them about it. That said, I am going to weigh in because I can't help myself. Um, listen to your story. All I could think of were the stories that I've heard, uh, some from people I've known personally who discovered as young adults that the grandparent or perhaps the parent that they loved and respected who was a hero to them had been a Nazi war criminal, had been a camp guard, had been a functionary in the Nazi state and participated in genocide. And how do you reconcile those those two facts, the, the, this loving person that you idolized and who was there for you and did for you, like your grandfather who kept a roof over your head, with this monster who raped your mother and her sisters and that your sister had to be protected from? Uh, and maybe the right response is to not attempt to reconcile those two things. You don't have to continue and nor would I if I were you to worship your grandfather's memory but you just have to accept the fact that this is an irreconcilable, that people can be – people are neither all good nor all evil and that someone who is capable of good actions is also capable obviously of very, very terrible actions and it may help if you continue to get to the bottom of this. It says you, you say that you spoke to an uncle about this. Uh, this is something that I think you have a right to speak to your mother about and to your aunts and to your sister and anyone else and your grandmother if she's still alive. Uh, and I would, if I were you, if this had happened to me, if I were in your position, I would have some 
not angry or accusatory questions to ask. You don't know what sort of circumstance that your mother or your, her sisters or your grandmother were in and what kind of power this man wielded over his family. But I would ask some pointed questions about why you were allowed to have a relationship with this person, why he was never held to account, why he was not in prison as opposed to in your life. And maybe it was economic desperation. Maybe it was abuse. Maybe there's a whole other ugly layer that it will be distressing to hear about as well. But now that you know this truth about your grandfather, I think you will only be able to walk with this, to live with this, if you know the whole truth about your grandfather and about who he was and what he did, why it was kept from you and why he was kept from the accounting, the, the, the legal accounting that he had coming, why he was not prosecuted, why he was not in prison, why he was not reported. Then let him go. Let his memory go. And you are blameless here. You as a young boy formed uh, an emotional attachment to this man who was one thing to you and another thing to other people and that is an emotional attachment that in a way you were allowed to form that perhaps you shouldn't have been allowed to form. And you're not responsible for your feelings of affection for your grandfather. You are not at age 5, 6, 7, 8, 10, 11, 12, 13 expected to be the world's best judge of character or omniscient or all-seeing and all-knowing. You saw what you could of your grandfather. You knew what you knew of him. You know more about him now. And that is going to change how you feel about him and how you remember him. And that's ugly and unfortunate. And I'm sorry. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 31-year-old married straight female. And my brother is a 29-year-old married straight male. And I actually have a question kind of regarding him. And just to give you a little bit of background, we were, we're very close now and we've kind of been close all our lives. All our lives. We were raised by an incredibly conservative pastor, father, and now he is a very conservative right-wing talk show radio host. And so that's kind of, you can imagine um, the views on sex that we were raised with. Well, my brother has been married for about a year and a half and at the beginning of their marriage, um, his wife found out that he was using porn, and she got incredibly upset. And so he stopped using porn entirely. He's involved in a in a support group um, for men with a quote-unquote porn addiction. So he's really done a 180 on that activity um, all for her. About five months ago, she decided that she was not she was still upset about that, and so she started treating him quite horribly. And one of the things that she is doing is withholding sex from him. So they haven't had sex in months. This may sound kind of weird, a sister caring about her brother's sex life, but he's not having sex with his wife. He can't look at porn. And he told me that he feels guilty masturbating. So basically he is just having his sexuality dictated to and controlled by a a wife who right now is being very self-centered and, and then by a a father who, even if he's not telling my brother these these things about masturbation and porn being bad, certainly raised him with those ideas. And so as someone, I, I just think that everyone should have a very fulfilling and exciting and wonderful sex life. And I just want to know if you have any suggestions for how I can support my brother um, in this time and, and to help him break out of these controlling relationships and begin to get a view of his own sexuality that is not dictated by um, anyone else. I bet your dad and your brother and your brother's horrible wife 
uh, aren't subscribers to socio-effective neuroscience and psychology. It's a journal. Uh, I'm not a subscriber to it either. But they recently published a study that your brother and his horrible wife might want to read called Sexual Desire Not Hypersexuality is Related to Neurophysiological Responses Elicited by Sexual Images. It's science. It's a it, – scientists wrote this. It's a, it's a report. It's very much jargon-laden and dense and hard to get into. So thank God for Jillian Keenan at Slate who broke it all down for us into layman's terms. I'm just going to read a paragraph from the story she wrote at Slate, which is itself titled, Is Sex Addiction Real or Just an Excuse? Question mark. The study, which amazingly is the first of its kind, measured how the brains of people who struggle with sexually compulsive behavior respond to sexual images. If sex can be addictive in the clinical sense, scientists theorized, then the neural response of sex addicts to pornography should mimic the neural responses of drug or alcohol addicts to their drugs of choice. Instead, researchers found that hypersexual brains do not react in the same way as other addicts' brains. In fact, the neural responses to pornography only varied based on levels of sexual libido. So basically, this idea that there's all these raving sex addicts out there in the world who've been turned into sex addicts by pornography is complete bullshit. These are just guys with high libidos. Maybe your brother has a high libido. Unfortunately, your brother has a batshit crazy fucking psychotic castrating bitch of a wife. And my advice to you uh, would be to go to your brother and say, please don't make a baby with this woman. I'm so glad you guys aren't fucking because the last thing you need to do is have be shackled to this woman by scrambling your DNA with her for the rest of your life. I'm, you didn't mention kids and I am crossing my fingers. I'm holding them up next to the microphone, crossed fingers, eight crossed fingers right now, praying that there are not children in this relationship. Your brother needs to get the fuck out of this relationship. There is nothing wrong with him. There is something wrong with your dad, as I hope you both recognize. And there's something wrong with a wife, something wrong with a sex partner, husband or wife, who would do this to someone, who would stigmatize and shame and punish and, and drag someone through the mud like this. And your brother, for his own sense of self, uh, his own self-esteem, his own sexual health, his own mental needs to get the fuck out of this relationship. He doesn't necessarily need to find a woman who loves porn, although there are plenty of women out there who do. Our bodies ourselves. Google it. He needs to find a woman who's realistic and rational about sex and porn and doesn't regard sex as some terrible character flaw in her husband that has to be managed and controlled for which he should be punished. But it's something that they can enjoy together and explore together, something that cannot be contained through by, by shame or stigma or judgment, but something that does need some back and forth and give and take. And there may be some aspects of his sexuality that make her uncomfortable and hers that make his, but they can enjoy what they can of each other sexually together and then allow for a little bit of exploration outside the relationship perhaps through porn, if not other partners, because two people can't be all things sexually to one another. That's what – Porn is therefore partly and is useful for in a long-term committed and monogamous sexual relationship. Porn for a lot of people in those relationships is that release. That desire for variety can be sated with porn. Porn can contribute to someone's ability to stay sexually faithful and committed to another partner. That's the kind of relationship your brother needs. And that's the kind of relationship he can find with someone else. Tell him to get off his hands and knees, stand up to this woman divorce this woman, he needs to throw that card on the table. I am not going to live like this for the rest of my life. I'm not going to be controlled like this, shamed like this, manipulated with sex like this for the rest of my life. You get over it or I'm getting out. That's his card and he needs to play it. You should encourage him to. 
Yeah, hey, Dan. Uh, listening to episode 354 uh, with regard to negotiated safety. Uh, test, wait three months and then test again for HIV. And I just had a question about that. How do porn stars do, they don't test and then wait three months and then test again to do scenes without condom? Listening to another podcast, they tested, I think, on a Friday, got the results on a Saturday, and then they shot on a Sunday. And so I just wondered how you reconcile that. Is are they doing a different test, or is it because they're heterosexual, or or what 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 is the uh, reconciliation for test three months or test and get results and then shoot a day later? Joining me by phone, Joanna Angel. She's an adult film director, producer, and performer, and the owner of Burning Angel Entertainment. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us, Joanna. Hi. Hi. So what is the protocol? How does the porn industry handle HIV testing and safety? As It, it changes as the porn industry gets bigger. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, I mean, everybody has to get tested before they come to work. When I first got into porn, you could have a test that was a 28-day test, and everybody had to get tested every 28 days. And the porn industry was small enough then, and I, I felt comfortable with that test. I felt like there was a low risk rate. Somebody else may say, that's crazy. Is the porn industry a great place for like somebody who, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, obviously there's a risk when you go to work, but I didn't, I didn't feel high at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think as of the past year, now it's a 14-day test. And then, I mean, really, you can do whatever you want. I personally request everyone to have a 24-hour test because there is a testing center where you can get results back in 24 hours. I, that's what I personally request people who work with me, but I also pay for it to get done because it's outside of the the requirement, you know? So, I mean, if everybody wanted to pay out of pocket for somebody to have a brand new test, you could, just not everybody wants to do that. I just personally... You know, the, the, the question that the caller brings up is the fact that, you know, when we talk about negotiated safety, we say to test, wait three months, test again because that initial test uh, may not detect the antibodies if you were exposed very um, the, recently. The test, there's, there's two different, uh, different kinds of, there's a few different, different kinds of HIV test, and the one that we use is an RNA test, and an RNA test does test the antibodies. So The RNA um, test isn't testing for antibodies. It's actually testing for the presence of the virus. So it's going to detect it sooner. Yeah. You're not going to get a false negative, which you can with the antibody test, which is the more commonly uh, used test, the test that people will yeah. get when they go to an HIV testing center. The RNA test is more expensive, but porn stars are worth it? Yeah, we, ha- <laughs> we only accept RNA tests. I don't, I don't ex- let anybody work for me, nor, nor will anybody let you work for them if you don't have an RNA test. And so. There are studies out there that have shown that HIV transmission rates in the porn industry are very, very low. They are very, very low. Um, I wish they were nothing. And I'd love to say that they're nothing. And there was uh, recently an outbreak, and the porn industry is now in a moratorium right now. So, I mean, as soon as there is an outbreak, nobody is allowed to shoot anything until everybody is, anybody who's in the generation of the people that worked with that person or worked with the person that worked with that person, everybody has to get retested. Nobody's allowed to shoot anything. I mean, it's literally like a red phone goes off, and everybody has to stop everything that they're doing. So, and is, it, is that a self-imposed regulation, or is that some sort of state law? Yeah, that's self. That's self-imposed. The state does try to impose laws, but they actually don't really help anyone. They just make things uh, inconvenient. Um, that is self-imposed. We do that because that is like kind of what the industry decided. There is a, the Free Speech Coalition. It's kind of like the 
the coalition, it helps the industry. You know, they're, they're always there to help someone if there's like an obscenity case or any kind of First Amendment issue. Um, and they, they've also, you know, they also get involved when there's any kind of like outbreak or anything like that. So basically, as soon as um, somebody's test came back positive, they sent um, a press release out to everyone in the industry saying stop shooting. And, and literally people stopped. Like if people were in the middle of shooting a scene, they stopped. Like everybody, you know, a lot of people lost thousands and thousands of dollars from canceling things they had going on. Um, because, um, you know, like I had a really big shoot booked today, actually, and um, I had bought plane tickets for people. Um, you know, I paid for a bunch of people to go get tested and stuff like that, and, I, you know, I, I paid for sets to get built. I ordered costumes. I mean, everything kind of went out the window, and it's all on hold until further notice. That seems very commendable. I can't say that there is is a zero risk. You know, like if you are the type of person that has only had one partner your whole life and you always use a condom, then maybe porn is not the right industry for you. Um, but I don't think it's an extremely high risk. And, I, you know, I do feel safe here. I definitely feel safer in porn <laughs> than I felt <laughs> at some parties in college. <laughs> I think that the, <laughs> I think that when when your job is on the line, um, you, you know, you look at it differently. I mean... So uh, how long have you been in porn? How long have you been making porn? I've been making porn for ten years now, and you are still a, and you are HIV negative. I am HIV negative. Yes. So, if porn was this incredible risk for HIV transmission, somebody couldn't be in the industry for a decade and remain HIV negative. Clearly, the porn yeah. industry is doing something right, at least the straight side of it. Thank you. I mean, imagine if you live in a college town, everybody's boning everybody in town. You know, imagine if like the second somebody had. HIV or syphilis or, or something like everybody had to stop having sex for like a month <laughs> and everybody had to get tested and everybody was getting phone calls and told exactly what to do. I mean, that's kind of the, the equivalent of it. Um, you know, so speaking of how much porn is shot and how many people are, are sexually active, it's, it's pretty safe. Um, I can't say it's a hundred percent, but you know, God, think of how wonderful the world would be and how quickly we could eradicate sexually transmitted infections if that was the policy yeah, in every exactly. college town. Or imagine, yeah, or, or imagine like this, um, you know, I don't let, you can't go to work without a valid test. Like imagine if you were like at a bar and you were going home to have a one night stand with someone and, and then you, sh you had to show them a piece of paper that says like you were clean before you, you guys had sex, you know, like, and if somebody doesn't have a current test, I can't shoot them. Like people have come to set and been like, oh, sorry, like my test should be back tomorrow. Like, I don't know what happened. Like you don't shoot them if like you can't shoot them if, if that's the case. So imagine like if you wanted to have sex with someone and you just didn't have this current piece of paper saying that you were clean that came from a doctor in order to have sex with someone like imagine how, how different the world could be if everybody acted like they were in porn I, I do I, I gotta jump in here really quickly because we'll get a million calls uh, to describe people who have a sexually transmitted infection who don't as to describe people who don't have a sexually transmitted infection as clean Versus people who do, it implies that they are dirty. People have STIs. Some are permanent. I didn't mean to use the wrong word. Well, no, That's I mean, just a, to uh, me, is important. Do you yeah. have a clean test? I didn't. I don't. I don't. You know, there are plenty of people with HIV, and they're not dirty people. Right. I'm not trying to scold you. It's just that 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 kind of terminology sometimes for a lot of people with HIV, many of whom listen to my show, gets them gets them upset. And I think legit. So we need a better word, though. Like clean is the the word. You know, the colloquialism of choice in that context, and we we need a word that says what clean means without implying that people with sexually transmitted infections uh, and, and incurable are ones dirty. are dirty. What, what, maybe we should brainstorm that right now. What could that word be? <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe clear? Is there a different opposite to clean that isn't dirty? Uh, clear. 
I like clear. Clear is better than clean. Because then it just implies that um, people with uh, sexually transfections are opaque or murky. And that's not as bad as being dirty. <laughs> it's touchy. I was not meaning to be. No, 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 no. It was but, totally fine. I don't yeah. mean. I, I'm not. I'm not scolding you. A lot of people use that term. I've heard people with HIV use "clean" uh, in, in that context. It's just. It's right now. It's like it's for also lack- what people use these days when they when they're on a vegan diet. They say, "I eat clean." <laughs> Does that mean that, that eating a hamburger is dirty? I don't know. Well, considering the amount of <laughs> considering the amount of feces they find in hamburger meat when they test it, I think the the vegans might have a point. Joanna Angel, adult film director, producer and performer and owner of Burning Angel Entertainment. Thanks for jumping on the phone with us. Well, thank you very much. If you guys ever need anything else, let me know. Hi, Dan. My name is Chris. I'm from Manhattan. And uh, my wife and I have a question. We have a daughter, and uh, we're wondering what your thoughts are about um, what's an appropriate time to start listening to your show. I see you want to do, so we're a little ahead of the game. But, uh, you know, the more we listen, the more we, we wanted to grow up with uh, vocabulary to talk about the things you could talk about. You've heard from somebody besides your parents that there are things out there like assholes and date rape and have a good bullshit detector. So your thoughts would be welcome. And I'm sure there are other parents here and curious about the same thing. Hope so, anyway. My standard advice about what age children should be when they begin to listen to the Savage Lovecast and, of course, all children everywhere should eventually begin to listen to the Savage Lovecast uh, is whatever age my son is plus six months. That's the age at which a child should begin to listen to the Savage Lovecast. Right now, that means 16. But in a decade, that will mean 26. So uh, get your kids listening to it now. Obviously, what I'm broadcasting here is a little bit of discomfort about this question. Every once in a while, I will meet somebody who will tell me that their 13-year-old listens to the show and they turned their 13-year-old onto the show and it makes my skin crawl. Not that there aren't 13-year-olds out there who are listening to the sound of my voice right now perhaps who are mature enough for this conversation and can keep it all in perspective. But I would hope they would find their own way to the show uh, through friendship networks or Googling uh, and not have their parents bring them to the show. That's like your parents taking you to a nudist camp I think. You know, there's certain aspects of our sexual development that need to happen independently of our parents' family. Parents do the big download, all the information. You should be talking to your daughter about date rape and that there are assholes out there and you should be doing the monologues, not a dialogue. That's the thing that parents need to remember about talking to your kids. Your kids are not going to want to talk to you about it. So you go in there with what you need to say, the info you need to impart and you just download it in a long monologue, make an outline and talk. Uh, but other than that, you know, your, your child's explorations, uh, you know, their own personal comfort levels uh, around sex, how sacred they think it is versus how sort of just kind of fun and crazy it might be, all of that, that's, that, that's their thing. Let them grow and develop sexually. You've put the, stick them in the soil and fertilize it with all the information that they need about safety and, and birth control and consent and uh, coercion and – Self-advocacy, critically important for girls. Uh, and otherwise, just back the fuck off. They will find their way to my show. They will find their way to my column. If it speaks to them, they will find their way to it. Their peers, their slightly older peers or their slightly older siblings are listening. They will find their way to it. Mom and dad, you don't need to bring your kid to my show. In fact, mom and dad, I don't want you to bring your kid to my show because it will ruin my show for your kid. I want your kid to find my show and be a lifelong listener, which means mom can't turn around to it. Or dad. Let her find it. Let her be her dirty secret uh, that she keeps from her parents that she happens to listen to the same sex podcast or podcasts that they do. 
Hi, Dan. So I got a weird question. Am I the only person that gets an erection every time I'm on a, I'm on a plane and it starts to descend? Every time I'm on a plane and it's landing, I get an erection. Am I the only one? I bet you aren't, and I bet we will get calls from other airline sex freaks like you. I mean, there are people out there who have weird, spontaneous uh, arousal reactions to what seems like non-sexual stimuli, and it's probably just some neuron smashing into some other neuron randomly, and it carved a path into you uh, that, that you weren't even conscious of. You know, you think of people who have uh, erotic responses to high-heeled shoes or rubber swimming caps, and just how random that is to have that kind of sexual response, arousal response to that thing that no, that most people don't see as erotic object at all. Balloons, clowns, getting pies in the face. There are also sort of erotic responses we may have to a physical sensation, an activity, uh, this association that's strong. And I'm going to share now. I'm going to overshare now. Techs of at-risk youth are going to file out of the room because Grandpa Dan is going to tell something about his own dick. When I was a kid, every time I got into a kid, when I was a young adult, a million years ago, they still had those huge weird yellow taxis with the big leather back seat. And I, every time I got into one of those, I would get a hard-on. I don't know why and it doesn't happen in any other kind of cabs. Uber drivers, you are safe with me in the back seat. Any other kind of cab, town car, whatever, it didn't happen. But those big yellow cabs with the big seats in the back, I would get a boner. Don't know why. You, every time the plane starts in, you get a boner. Don't know why. Maybe the pressure change is affecting your erectile chambers in some weird way. Or maybe you just have this erotic association that's totally random with a plane landing. In the same way I had some weird random erotic association myself with the backseat of a certain kind of cab where I never got laid ever. Not once did I ever get laid in a cab. Nothing ever happened to me in a cab. But every time I got in a cab in Chicago in the 80s when they still had those big-ass cabs, so wing. Who knows? Maybe we'll hear from some other uh, guys with boners when plane lands and maybe some uh, folks out there will call in because they too used to get boners in the backs of cabs in the 80s. Hey, and anybody else out there who gets a weird erotic response, any other guys who get boners from random seemingly non-sexual situations or shit, give us a call. Tell us what it is. We want it. Let's start have a little support group meeting next week on this subject. Hey, Dan, follow up on the 14-year-old girl. I had a conversation with my daughter and her friends when they were around that age. Sometimes they don't know what they're advertising to when they wear the skimpy clothes. My daughter and her friends didn't quite realize it. I explained to them that everyone sees the advertising on television, whether it's geared at them or not. So when 14-year-old girls are dressing to catch the eye of the 14-year-old girls, they're also catching the eyes of the 40-year-old guys and the 80-year-old guys. Hi, um, I'm calling about the woman who called to find out if she should retroactively change trans people's pronouns in order to uh, match the gender they are today. I think that, yes, she absolutely should retroactively change the pronouns. It's the polite thing to do. People who are trans, myself included, often say they have always been trans. Uh, I'm a trans male. I've never been a little girl. I've always been a little boy. I've always been a grown man. So yes, yes, yes. Please retroactively change the pronouns to match the person uh, and the gender they are today. Hi, Dan. Just calling in response to episode 357, the um, trans-friendly small business owner. Uh, the solution, I thought, was pretty simple. Just take a discreet, not too flashy, 
ally or LGBT-friendly sticker, put it on the front door of the business along with the business hours and perhaps the you know security cameras are watching you if you steal, fine. And just let everyone know that that store is a place where people of all lifestyles are welcome. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Thank you again for subscribing to the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast. We appreciate your support. We also appreciate your feedback. If you have any ideas about things you'd like to hear on the show or things ways we could improve the show or anything else, your feedback is always welcomed at 206 201 2720. And you can, of course, leave comments on every show at www.savagelovecast.com, where I and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy, we will all be reading. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Someone else you should be following on Twitter? Leia Torres, MD. She's an OBGYN with a career focus on promoting healthy sexual practices and education. And her Twitter feed is amazing and invigorating. At Leah N. Torres. That's L-E-A-H-N-T-O-R-R-E-S on Twitter. Buy my new book, American Savage, in bookstores now. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.